We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Okay, well, welcome back. This is Bob Brandon and Hampton Keithley, and this is Politics Friday, episode 16. What are we going to talk about today, Bob? Well, the first thing we're going to do, Hampton, is I am going to tell you what I have scheduled for this afternoon. I learned from the scriptures to be careful about saying what is going to happen because you don't really know. And so many of my well-laid plans have gone awry. However, what's on the schedule at 2.06 p.m. is a tea time. I was going to say, when you start saying 2.06 or 2.08. (laughs) With my daughter. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And we keep score the way I want to keep score. Yeah, I always like playing with you. I scored way better. I, got I know. To, I got a lot of do-overs. I, I know. <laughs> it's more like Tesla math as opposed to Einstein, or Edison or Einstein math. Yeah. It, last time, it, you can um, extrapolate what kind of math I'm using just by hearing this score. The last time we scrambled, we were three under par. <laughs> And you've seen me play, right? Right. So, and she and she's worse than me. So okay. that's well, that how is, we got that is three. creative, creative math, new, <laughs> new math. But it looks ominous outside. We got some pretty thick clouds. Coming. Well, I do miss I do miss that sixteenth hole. I think it is on your course where you're a hundred yards. The hill. Of, you're above hundred yards above the the, the green. Isn't that beautiful? And you survey the whole valley. Oh, man, that's nice. So, you know what? That reminds me. We'll, we'll get to our subject in just a minute. But you remember uh, Francis Schaefer, of course. Uh-huh. And you remember his wife, Edith. And Edith used to come to Vail. The guy who led me to the Lord was very close with her and had spent you know, time at Labrie. And she, if she was traveling anywhere around here, she'd stop in Vail for a day or two. And we used to walk through Vail a long time ago when it was more like a village. Now it's kind of like a little city almost, yeah. you know, it's so developed, but it just was this quaint mountain, beautiful village. And uh, we'd hold hands and talk about God's leftover beauty in the creation, even post, post-fall, post post with, with, with Edith Schaefer. Yeah. Well, I would think someone who lived in the Swiss Alps would go to the beach or something for a vacation, not I go know. to Vail. 
It's the exact same, very similar, right? Especially the the scenery in the Vale Village because you have that Gore Range in the in the background. And then then I'd get home and maybe Charles Ryrie would be staying at our our ministry house, and he'd always wake me up in the middle of the night just to make me mad because as a uh, athlete. Right, growing. I know it doesn't look like it now, but I used to be an athlete. <laughs> so, you know, I go to bed like eight, nine o'clock, even when I was a young guy, even even when I was, you know, 25, 30. And Ryrie would come in about midnight and wake me up and he'd sit on the edge of the bed and he'd go, Bob, I, I'm really struggling with prelapsarianism just to make me mad. <laughs> And I, t- I say, Charles, just go read your own book. You know, you already, you already discussed that. Oh, boy. That's hilarious. That's funny. okay. So what are we talking about today? Okay, so we're going to lay the foundation a little more for this is Politics Friday, of course, but to understand the Constitution. So we're going to read from a book. We'll pause here and there. You'll probably rabbit trail me on some stuff. Christianity and the Constitution, the faith of our founding fathers by John Eidsmo. You ever heard of John? I have not. Let me read a little blurb about him on the back of the book. John Eidsmo holds five degrees in law, theology, and political science. He currently serves as professor of constitutional law and related subjects at the Thomas Good Jones School of Law, Faulkner University, Montgomery, Alabama, where he received the Outstanding Professor Award in 1993. A constitutional attorney and Lieutenant Colonel in the US Air Force Reserve. He's also taught church history and other subjects in various seminaries has produced a 12-part video series titled The Institute on the Constitution. His other books include The Christian Legal Advisor, God and Caesar, and Columbus and Cortez. So, wow. yeah, pretty good. So he's, he's good to listen to. So we'll read him and then interact. You know, part of the reason you've heard me read quite a bit, whether it's from the scripture or different authors, right? We, we read a fair amount of Truman and so on. Part of my thinking is why reinvent the wheel? I mean, if these guys are this sharp on their subjects, my goal is to bring these people to the audience, Right. I, I can't say it better than Idsmo saying it. I can't say it better than Truman saying it. So if you read it um, with some enthusiasm, it's just good to listen to these well, that, guys from time to time. Yeah, well, that gives me a new perspective on uh, Pentecost book. We called it Things to Quote. <laughs> there you go. I was you're, just you're, looking at that last that? night. I, of course I do. I was looking at it last night. Let me tell you what I was doing when I was looking at that book. So in my little library, I've got uh, a TV in the middle, right? All the books around the TV and so on. You know, thinking about that now, just saying that that's sort of scary. That's not necessarily a good idea. But so right above the TV, horizontally, not vertically, is Dwight Pentecost, Things to Come. 
So I was watching that. And you know, I've mentioned this, I don't know how many times. I don't watch many movies, but I watched 20 minutes of one last night. And it was 20 minutes of the best cinema that's been the last 40 years. What was because, that? Oh, man, Gladiator. Oh, yeah. oh wow. And it, this scene where is his first battle in Rome, and you got that terrible toilet for an emperor. That's what I call him because his name is Commodus. So I, <laughs> I always think of the commode, you know. Right. And so, boy, I hate that guy. So anyway, he's he's watching what's going on and the rumors, right? Oh, we got this one great gladiator, the Spaniard. And the little kid is there, you know, who should be the emperor, Lucius. And he likes the Spaniard. And he's watching. And they're reenacting. It's fun to watch that stuff because, you know, I've read so much history, Hampton, over the years. So they're recreating for that scene, you know, that gladiatorial combat, the Battle of Zama, where Scipio, you could say it, Scipio or Scipio, mm -hmm. famous Roman. Oh, don't get me rabbit trailed on him. He was so awesome. I, I might do that anyway, Hampton. But um, he's fighting Hannibal. And uh, it's the Battle of Zama. And of course, Scipio wins. And um, the Spaniard, you know, Russell Crowe, he's, he's the barbarian horde from Carthage. <laughs> and so they have the battle and the emperor's going, didn't we win the Battle of Zama? <laughs> you know, because they're, they're defeating the guys who represent Rome and so on. So anyway, the crowd's just going crazy. They love it. And uh, so at the end of the fight, commode comes down and he wants to meet the spaniard and he's got this helmet on the, his helmet is so cool makes him look like a saber-toothed tiger who by the way has the best name of an animal i've ever heard we we know it as saber-toothed tiger but the scientific name of the saber-tooth is Smilodon fatalis it's <laughs> 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 so good so anyway he's got that helmet on and um, Commode is saying, hey, you know, who are you? Take your helmet off and tell me who you are. And the, the guy just turns away. And uh, Commode just starts going ballistic. You know, you turn your back on me. You turn, you know, his soldiers start to get ready for a fight, you know. So um, Russell Crowe turns around, takes his helmet off. It is, oh, it's so good. I can't remember the you know, every word, but, oh man, my yeah. name, it, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North. And you can see Commode realizes who that is, knows him well, in fact, tried to have him murdered. And then he goes, you know, father to a murdered son husband to a murdered wife and i'll have my revenge in this world or the next oh my gosh it almost gives me chills to recall that so anyway we're talking about christianity and the constitution happening but you <laughs> rabbit you rabbit trail <clears throat> so anyway ides mode uh ides mode is a good guy to listen to so <clears throat> we're going to go through this book and i'll excise the parts we don't need 
but we need some of the background. And what he does in, in this book is provide the background to the Constitution, you know, what the guys who wrote the Constitution, <clears throat> what was in their mind when they were writing. So what books were they reading? What were their lives like? What did they think in order to write uh, the Constitution of the United States? So the first section is just the background. What was going on culturally in the 1600s and 1700s in America? And then you get into specific guys, Madison, Hamilton, Washington, Jefferson, and the, you know, the whole crew. So we're going to examine those guys to see what our foundation is in this country. And keep, let me give one last little bit of um, introduction. When Obama was president, he made a statement <clears throat> that the United States is not a Christian nation. And I remember hearing him and thinking, you know, in, in many ways, he's, he's right. I'm, I'm not sure I would call us a Christian nation as we function today. Right. But our foundation was as Christian as you get. Yeah. And it, it, it built, you know, the greatest country there's been, in my opinion, to, to honor a human being. I mean, Hampton, you know, our days will be over not that long from now, but we lived, you and I were just so fortunate, weren't we, to, to live in a country where you had freedom yeah. and, and you're surrounded by plenty, really, the poorest of us is remarkably wealthy compared to the rest of the world. Yeah. And, and so we're the beneficiaries of these guys. So I understand what Obama was saying, uh, but you know, everything those guys say is so politically calculated. He, he's not saying that as an honest observation on America. He's saying that to, to wrangle some votes and, and guide it the way he, the direction he wants it to go. But the foundation of this country was remarkably Christian. Here's the introduction. This is just a little three page thing. I might pause here and there. And Hampton, you feel free to interrupt me when you're motivated by the spirit. Okay. It's really an assembly of demigods. Thomas Jefferson wrote to John Adams. Later, Jefferson added, a more able assembly never sat in America, nor, we may add, has a more able assembly ever sat since. So let's pause there for a second. That's just a little three-sentence opening paragraph. I asked, my dad was not a Christian. He passed away a few years ago. But I asked him one time, you know, concerning our founding fathers, and he's still from a generation where even though not Christian, would abide by every principle these guys laid down. And I said, Dad, you know, the founding fathers are really a remarkable collection of people. And he said they were. He said, yeah, I, I think so too. And I said, well, why don't we see that today in our current situation? It was so interesting. His comment in reply was, I think that those people are always there you know, in every generation, and it just takes a certain um, set of circumstances for them to rise to the surface. 
And I, I imagine he's correct. And so the encouragement I take from that is I think we're about to see some leaders come into the United States and uh, really voice the truth, what's really going on, and they're going to try to correct it. Whether or not they're going to be strong enough to overcome the deep state, I don't know. Perhaps. But I think it'll be remarkable to see them. I, I pray for that. Yeah. So here, let me continue with Eidsmo. Most of America's great minds assembled as the great convention in Independence Hall in Philadelphia on May 14th, 1787, to propose changes in America's plan of government. The men were hopeful. They intended to pool their learning and wisdom, draw from the best of past governments and thinkers, and perhaps try a few new ideas. They'd experienced tyranny under Great Britain with a government that was too powerful. They had fought a major war to be freed from that oppression. They'd experienced anarchy under the Articles of Confederation, which created a government that was too weak and the nation had nearly collapsed as a result. So they hoped to formulate a system of government powerful enough to prevent anarchy, but appropriately restricted to prevent tyranny. Right from the beginning, the convention was beset with problems. First, the convention was without funds. The delegates who came did so at their own expense. Second, the convention began with only seven of the 13 states represented, some by a partial delegation. Eventually, more delegations arrived, although some also left. Finally, 12 of the 13 states were represented. Rhode Island chose not to participate. How could a new nation be formed with so little cooperation and enthusiasm? It soon became apparent that those present were by no means of one accord. Alexander Hamilton, the distinguished and brilliant New Yorker, distrusted the masses and wanted a strong central government. In contrast, Roger Sherman of Connecticut and others, strong defenders of states' rights, didn't trust a central government. Delegates from the large states like James Madison of Virginia wanted proportional representation in Congress. Men like William Patterson of New Jersey felt smaller states would be abused by the larger states unless each state had an equal voice in the Congress. There was also the underlying issue of slavery. Some Northern delegates totally opposed slavery, wanted it abolished. Other delegates morally opposed to slavery, but were slaveholders themselves. Some delegates defended slavery as an institution and declared that the South would not ratify the Constitution if it contained anti-slavery provisions. Debating this point and that, the convention dragged listlessly on. It passed some measures, defeated others, referred some matters to committees, and then seemingly lost sight of them. Each wanted 
the state delegations were unwilling to compromise. Each wanted its own way. A discouraged George Washington, the convention chairman, wrote a friend saying that he doubted the convention would ever agree on a new plan of government. On June 28th, 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin, the oldest delegate at the convention, delivered what was probably the most famous speech of the entire meeting. He noted that, so here we're going to quote Franklin. So imagine this, June 28th, Franklin stands up, says this, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks is melancholy proof of the imperfection of the human understanding. Rather than mere human understanding, the delegates needed something more. The father of lights, Franklin goes on to say, to illuminate our understanding. He reminded the delegates that during the War of Independence, they had prayed regularly to God in that very hall. Franklin goes on to say, our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. All of them could remember God's intervention on their behalf and that intervention, to that intervention, they owed their victory over Great Britain. So Franklin goes on to say, and have we forgotten that powerful friend or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. The longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We've been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. Franklin then suggested daily prayers led by one or more Philadelphia clergymen. How was Franklin's suggestion received? Did the delegates become conscious of their need for God's help? Did they turn to God and implore his assistance? Was God present at the great convention in Philadelphia? Did he intervene and forge unity out of discord? Does the U.S. Constitution bear God's imprint, reflect his wisdom and his precepts? Before we answer those questions, let's fade from Independence Hall and reflect on the forces that influence these men. We'll investigate their background, education, what they read, whom they respected. And then we'll examine in detail the religious beliefs of a representative dozen of the delegates. All of these factors have a bearing on the document they forged, the United States Constitution. How's that for an intro? That was very good. Hard to believe, you know, people all say that they talk about Benjamin Franklin and Jefferson not being Christian, but they may not have trusted in Jesus for their salvation. We don't know, but they were certainly biblical. 
that's yeah the term i would use for them regardless of you know nitpicking their theology which is helpful on occasions but generally speaking their worldview was as christian as you get right you know that's a good way to put the worldview yeah they're you know their motive to pray what they're praying why they're praying they're christian through and through and in their worldview yeah and 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 hence set up a remarkable government remarkable and you can hear ides mode saying in there you know the scylla and charybdis they're trying to walk between is tyranny they don't want a government that's too strong but they don't want the masses <laughs> rising up in rebellion either Right. So they're, they're, they're walking between tyranny and rebellion and trying to figure out the best way to do that. And they're drawing on their resources. Like we'll, we'll read in the next chapter. I can hardly wait to get there, but <clears throat> he talks about the education these guys had. And it's so, this is another illustration. Don't you think of the social imaginary? Don't we think today those guys were less educated than, than today? Well, I don't think that. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. But I bet the guy on the street would think that, you know, oh, in 1700, they didn't know this or that. Oh, my gosh. They've, we're going to read the entrance requirements to college in a few minutes. And I, I bet you there's not a guy today, well, in of, of political background that would even try to apply. Yeah. So any other comments or should I move on? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So th this is so good. I'm going to, you know, read it at a pace where some of it sinks in. Colonists came from many lands and arrived at many different times to build a new nation. Some landed at Jamestown in 1607. Others landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620 having crossed the Atlantic on the Mayflower. In 1630, the Arabella arrived at Salem with a group of settlers. Throughout the 1600s, shiploads of eager settlers arrived at various ports to begin a new life. Let's pause there. Hampton, <clears throat> haven't you often had this thought, like what would it be like to walk through America in its raw primitive state not that there weren't indians here right but they in, indians you know didn't really develop much they they made villages and cities but not developments right yeah. they're they're more part of nature itself imagine the rugged beauty of the united states oh yeah I've, i one person described it to me once this way, <clears throat> ever since she said it, I've thought, man, that's exactly right. So we're, we're more mobile today than we were generations ago. Like I grew up in Ohio, 20 years or so in Ohio, 20 years in Texas, 20 years here, rounding off a year or two on those. But she described the physicality of the U.S. like this. The East is more feminine and the west is more masculine 
And man, ever since she said that, I've thought, you know, I think she's right. In the in the east, you know, a forest, if you're driving down a road in the east that's cutting through the forest, you can't see five feet into that forest. It's so lush and thick, you know, like a, a just a beautiful feminine head of hair. You get out west, and it's like huge, broad shoulders you can see forever, you know. I, I think she was exactly right. Yeah, I, I remember I remember going to a programmer's training class in Hartford, Connecticut. I got off the plane, rented the car, and I was driving and trying to find things. And I was just like, oh, my goodness, there's trees right up next oh. to the highway. And I, you know, I'm used to Texas where you could see your sign of where you wanted to exit, you know, a mile yeah. or two away. And right. here it was just right on you. And yeah, I was trying to find a place to get off and I got off and uh, in this little town and got gas and something to drink. And I couldn't find the entrance to the back on the freeway. And finally <laughs> I stopped and the guy goes, Oh, you got to go to the next town on this road. And there, they have an entrance to the freeway. And I was just, but it was just so, like you say, so close and on top yeah. of you and uh, yeah. very different. I love that lush, you know, that lush uh, forestry. Oh, man, that's be I grew up, you know, summers, spending summers in New Hampshire and this good sized lake there, Lake Winnipesaukee. Oh, man, just paradise for a kid. Swimming this beautiful crystal clear water and then you're in the forest. Oh, man, it was so good. So anyway. Let's continue with Eidsmo. Some colonists were wealthy. Some were slaves or indentured servants. Other colonists owned nothing but the clothes on their backs. Although many colonists came empty-handed, they did not come empty-minded. They brought with them the heritage, culture, and ideas from the lands of their birth. In forming a new nation and developing its constitution the following century, the delegates, the 1787 convention, did not intend to put into practice new and untried ideas. The framers of the American constitution based their political concepts on the tried and tested ideas of the past. These men were intelligent, well-educated, and widely read. They combined the best ideas they'd read about to establish a government for the United States. Let's pause there for a second, Hampton. Remember going through the Truman book and talking about <clears throat> some of the cultural changes you see today. They want to erase the past, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, where's the wisdom in that? <laughs> well, obviously you can learn from the past you don't erase it right you acknowledge it and learn from it but to erase it just sets you on a course of chaos so back to Eidsmo therefore it's appropriate to ask what influenced the founders of this nation which books did they read which thinkers did they respect to which theological, philosophical, and political systems did they subscribe? We're going to hear the answer to that in a second. Their ideas came from a variety of sources, but one source stands out 
above all others. Ooh, can you imagine? Like, wet your appetite for this next quote. It's a whole paragraph quote. It's this par next paragraph is written by Dr. E.W. Smith. Smith's a historian. So here's the here's the question. Their ideas came from a variety of sources, but one source stands out above all others. Here's the answering paragraph. If the average American citizen were asked, who was the founder of America, the true author of our great republic, he might be puzzled to answer. We can imagine his amazement at hearing the answer given to this question by the famous German historian Ranke, one of the profoundest scholars of modern times. Says Ranke, John Calvin was the virtual founder of America. Really? Isn't that interesting? And he's not shooting from the hip. That's his subject of study. Premier historian of that age. He goes, not even a question, John Calvin. So let's hear some more about that. Smith continues. So we're listening to Smith now. These revolutionary principles of Republican liberty, Republican, so I'm going to jump in there. Not, don't think of, you know, our political parties today. He doesn't mean, you know, the Republican Party that you and I are familiar with or the Democrat Party. Republican just meaning that form of government. Right. Right. So a democracy, a representative democracy. That's a republic. So <clears throat> back to Smith, these revolutionary principles of Republican liberty and self-government taught and embodied in the system of Calvin were brought to America. And in this new land where they have borne so mighty a harvest were planted by whose hands? By the hands of the Calvinists. The virtual, the vital relation of Calvin and Calvinism to the founding of the free institutions of America. However strange in some ears by the statement of Ranka may have sounded, it's recognized and affirmed by historians of all lands and creeds. So it's not just Ranka saying that. Everybody who studies the history of that, you know, of our founding is say Calvin was the founder of America. Hmm. And Dr. Smith is not alone in his assessment. Bancroft, probably the leading American historian of the 19th century, simply called Calvin the father of America. Bancroft, far from being a Calvinist himself, added, he who will not honor the memory and respect the influence of Calvin knows but little of the origin of American liberty. Those are powerful statements. Yeah, and I never heard that actually. Yeah, they're all being, I, I can never, let me spell this out. Cause you're better with languages than me, Hampton. So this is a French guy, apparently. How would just, you- Just don't pronounce any of the consonants and you'll probably get <laughs> okay. it pretty similar. <laughs> What a waste of trees, man. <laughs> Those guys, you could, you could, oh, well, let me just spell it out. D apostrophe K 
capital A-U-B-I-G-N-E. How, how would you say that? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just a bumpkin. So anyway, that guy, a leading Reformation scholar, echoed a similar theme. Calvin was the founder of the greatest of republics. The pilgrims who left their country in the reign of James I and landing on barren soil of New England. I wouldn't call New England barren soil, but regardless. Raw. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Landing on the barren soil of New England, founded populous and mighty colonies, were his sons, his direct and legitimate sons. So he's saying the pilgrims were the sons of Calvin. And that American nation, which we have seen growing so rapidly, boasts as its father, the humble reformer on the shore of Lake Leman. So many people are saying the same thing, Hampton. Calvin was the father of America. Here's another. The Roman Catholic scholar Emilio Castellar, professor of philosophy at the University of Madrid, and later president of the Republic of Spain in 1873 acknowledged it was necessary for the Republican movement that there should come a morality more austere than Luther's, the morality of Calvin, and a church more democratic than the German, the Church of Geneva. The Anglo-Saxon democracy has for its lineage a book of a primitive society, the Bible. It is the product of several theology, severe theology. I, you know, his use of terms there, severe, I think he just means black and white, right? Like point blank, it just says X. That's what he's talking about. It is the product of a severe theology learned by the few Christian fugitives in the gloomy cities of Holland and Switzerland where the morose shade of Calvin still wanders. It remains serenely in its grandeur, forming the most dignified, most moral, and most enlightening portion of the human race. Right? It's all based on the Bible through Calvin's theology. That's the founding of the United States. Yeah, and I, I remember when I first heard the connection, but um, Columbus discovered America in 1492. Was it 1517? Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door in Germany. And then you've got the whole Reformation and Calvin. And so God had, you know, was preparing a place for all of these dis dissidents. Seemed like it. To be able to uh, flee Europe yeah. and have a place to go and start this uh, new country. And didn't, didn't they sense that and call that manifest destiny? Yeah. But what they, they thought. Yeah, but what, we, what we hear now, manifest destiny is a, a bad term and it was used to justify killing all the Indians, right? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, what, from what we will read of them, what they thought of manifest destiny was essentially the freedom to honor mankind, right? Freedom and liberty, right? The pursuit 
right? Of mm-hmm. life, liberty, happiness. That that's how they saw it. Yeah. So <clears throat> here, let me read another paragraph. This is a quote from uh, Lorraine Bettner, Dr. Bettner. It is estimated that of the 3 million Americans at the time of the American Revolution, wouldn't that be a great trivia question? What was the population of the U.S. at the time of the Revolution? 3 million. About about 3 3 million. 900,000 of those were Scotch or Scotch-Irish origin. 600,000 were Puritan English. 400,000 were German or Dutch reformed. In addition to this, the Episcopalians had a Calvinistic confession in their 39 articles, and many French Huguenots also had come to this Western world. Thus, we see that about two-thirds of the colonial population had been trained in the school of Calvin. That's powerful numbers. Yeah. What does Calvinism, a theological system, have to do with constitutions and forms of government? Here's the answer to that. The answer is a great deal. For for Calvinism, like any theological system, encompasses both a worldview and a view of human nature. The way one views the world and human nature will determine one's choice for effective government. As James Madison asked in the Federalist, number 51, what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, and uh, quite a contrast with the Enlightenment and Rousseau and man is basically good. Yeah. You know, as opposed to Calvinism. Right. Total, total depravity. Exactly. And that you're, we're going to read that stuff, you know, coming up on further episodes, just exactly what they thought of human nature and why they designed the government they did. I'm going to quibble with Eidsmo here just a second, because I, I want to go down a rabbit trail without you even pushing me. Okay. You, know, you can't see the text I'm reading, but it, it read like this. Like any theological system, encompasses both a world view and a view of human nature. So, world and view are separate words in that clause, but they shouldn't be. World view is one word. Its world view is the English version of Weltanschauung. Right, the, mm-hmm. the German the German word for worldview. And Germans, you know this way better than I, but they just connect words to make new words instead of an adjective and a noun or whatever. They just put it all together. That's why you see big long words sometimes. Yeah, I know I, I like they don't have a word for glove, they have the word hand shoe. <laughs> and they don't have a word for ambulance, they have sick car. Yeah, they just put them together as mm-hmm. as one word, right? So when you see the word worldview, it should be one word because okay. that's just the English translation of the German Weltanschauung. But <clears throat> here it was separated. And I don't know if that's Eidsmo not knowing that or his editor or what. And it's 
not really something to quibble over, just that it's a critical term. That's why we have a whole podcast on worldview, right? And you can see how they, how that concept of worldview really bleeds over into politics. It, it's exactly what James Madison said in Federalist number 51. So <clears throat> I want to pause and really drive home that concept of worldview, exactly what that is. Because in my own thinking, I don't say this dogmatically, I only say it in a revelatory sense that if anybody wants to understand me personally, so I'm not saying this is, uh, you could take this inside a seminary or something. This, this is just my own thinking. Christianity to me is not a religion. And I understand you could define it that way. E easily, you could define it that way. <clears throat> it would fit those parameters. But I see Christianity as a worldview. It is the ultimate worldview. And I, I think I've elaborated on this a little bit in, on our, some of our other episodes. But for instance, can you imagine the Apostle Paul or Jesus or the Apostle John, or whoever else you want to put in there, going to bed at night and telling their compatriots, you know, wow, I really gave them good religion today. Right. That, that sounds like lunacy. That is not how they viewed what they were doing. You can imagine them saying, I told the truth today. Right. Right. Because what they were doing was propagating a worldview. That, that's how I see Christianity. It's critical. So let me define that stuff. So I'll give you uh, the dictionary definition of worldview. And then I'll tell you how I would define it, because I, I am less than satisfied with Miriam Webster. So <laughs> Webster defines worldview a comprehensive conception or apprehension of the world, especially from a specific standpoint. <clears throat> so that that's accurate. But that that's like imagine, you know, shooting an arrow at a target. She hit the target, but that's not you didn't bullseye that. Okay. So <laughs> here's how I would define it. Worldview is your perception of your surroundings be they events, people, ideas, or objects, enabling one to comprehend, accept, decide, and act upon that data. So <clears throat> let me read it again. Worldview is your perception of your surroundings, be they events, people, ideas, or objects, enabling one to comprehend, accept, decide, and act upon that data. That's cooked up in the bathtub while I was thinking about our podcast this morning. Okay. But I think, <laughs> but I, that's what I would roll with. And <clears throat> let me. Well, and does your worldview match reality? <clears throat> yes, so we're going to, you know, make, so you can make good decisions. We're, exactly. So we're going to elaborate on this a little bit, but let me let me state a corollary. I'm going to write down: Does it match reality? That was a good observation. Um, so 
wisdom, that is really close to a definition of wisdom. So here, here's wisdom. Wisdom is living life skillfully by piercing to the heart of a matter and making correct choices. So it's that, that part about piercing to the heart of a matter. It's your worldview that's going to enable you to do that. And then your gut reaction was to bring in the concept of truth, right? You said, does it match reality? That's the definition of truth, right? Truth yeah. is that which corresponds to reality. So <clears throat> you can imagine unless you rigorously think through your worldview. So in other words, you, we could put shoe leather on that by saying, unless you're reading the Bible all the time you will necessarily fall in to the world's system. You will be part of the social imaginary. You will be subject to the prince of the power of the air unless you rigorously think through, right? The events, objects around you, the ideas and the people through the biblical grid, through the biblical worldview. I remember Hampton going to a church <clears throat> one time, don't want to name it. And it, you know, I had a position there. So I was teaching quite a bit. And I remember one of the guys coming up to me after a month or two and he's going, you know, my, my wife's really struggling with you. Well, that's not news to me, right? <laughs> Many people struggle with me. But I remember at least asking why. And he, imagine this comment. He said, because she thinks you actually believe this stuff. Really? That was the comment. And I was like, well, praise God, because I do believe this. And you know who else does? God <laughs> believes this. <laughs> So finally, she's hearing the word of God, and it was disturbing her. And so you, you just wonder, well, is that where a lot of people in our churches are? That really Christianity for them is their religion. It's not their worldview. And well, I, they, yeah, I think about ahead. the passage where they were amazed because Jesus taught with authority that's one of my favorite passages in the scripture. Yeah. It's so critical to present that the right way. I would often ask people, you know, imagine the most compelling sermon ever preached. Matthew chapter five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount. And I said, imagine a member of that audience who heard him preach that and then went home. And so he's with his wife. They're getting into bed. How would he describe what he heard? You know, oh, that guy really, wow, he understands religion. Or, wow, he said, you know, this and that. That's not what his takeaway would have been. His takeaway explicitly stated in the text was, I've never heard that kind of authority. I mean, that guy trumped Moses. <laughs> right? You have heard that it was said, and then he quotes Moses and then goes, but I say, wow. 
It was his authority that just blew people away. So Hampton, well, I, take I, I can't help but think about our previous conversation. We had I was just going to our podcast. Started. I was just going to say that. Isn't that what was bothering the other person you were talking with? Yeah. The I'm just seen as opinionated and it's just when it's all it is, is my truth. And I'm sitting here going, uh, no, it's not my truth. It's the truth. Well, that sounds opinionated <laughs> when I say that. So you can't win. But I really think that the root issue is, you know, the Bible and Jesus are the authority and the truth. I think that's it exactly. And, I, and I we're not arguing we about infant baptism versus immersion. I mean, you <laughs> no, know, big, big worldview stuff. Yeah. I, I think that's it. And no one who listened to his sermon would have quibbled with that takeaway. It was his authority that blew them away. And if you heard it live, you would not quibble with that. It, whether you agreed with it or not, your takeaway would have been his authority. Yeah. That's, that's Jesus, Jesus really believed that stuff he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then, but so Hampton, but let's follow that theme all the way through, right? When you get to the end of Matthew, so Matthew chapter 28, how does it start out? The famous missionary passage, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. So <clears throat> that's a huge part of the Christian worldview, because as we've discussed on air and off air, ultimately what you need in the search for truth is an infallible source. And anything less than that will lead you astray. And there is one infallible source of truth on earth, and that's God. That's the Bible. It's his word. Any, anything less than grasping that concept, you, will, you are unanchored. You are adrift on the sea of Karl Marx, the sea of Rousseau, the sea of Charles Darwin, and your ship will crash. Right. Yeah, I was thinking that we needed to, to uh, have a podcast that dealt with my conversation earlier today and you just did it <laughs> well Idesmo led us down the right path and that might be a good good place hampton don't you think I yeah we've been going for about an hour so yeah i remember where we are so we'll, we'll pick it up with him because i really want to get to i'm just gonna laugh so hard i read this to my daughter yesterday the entrance requirements for one of the colleges that these guys had to go to <laughs> it's so it's so funny yeah yeah, so, can't wait. Okay. okay, well, until next time, I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Hampton. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. Mm-hmm.